0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As the spike in sales of neckties and golf themed tchotchkes tells us, last Sunday was Father's Day. And no, it's not the day that sees the most collect calls all year. For one thing, it's not 1987. Who makes collect calls? Where do you even find a payphone? My own father, who's gone on before, was a sci-fi fan of the old school, bred to the bone. My mother would buy him grocery bags of pulp paperbacks for his birthday. The man had the original Star Trek series in its entirety on VHS, commercial-free, taped off the TV, and an Enterprise technical manual. No! So in his honor, Today's episode goes back in time to look at the future as we dive into the wormhole of classic sci-fi. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. First off, and this is often a point of contention, we need to establish what we're talking about when we say sci-fi. We're not going to haul out the Merriam-Webster for this. There is some wiggle room, and a fair amount of debate. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at a list of top however many sci-fi whatevers, only to kvetch out loud, that's barely even fantasy, let alone sci-fi, or just because it's set in the future doesn't make it sci-fi, idiot. I take this very seriously. Whether a work draws on existing science and technology to extrapolate what we might see in future generations, what we know as hard sci-fi, or the author goes, laser guns, pew pew, a key requirement for science fiction is that it be speculative. If it's worth its salt, its focus will be on how we as humans will interact with and react to this proposed environment, its trappings, and its other occupants. Even though there's a lot of overlap in the fan bases, and as Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, we're going to eschew the sword and sorcery genre of fantasy, and even science fantasy for right now. Likewise, we're probably not going to get into more recent subgenres like cyberpunk and slipstream. And we're going to skip over some of the better-known authors, because, well, they're better known. But that's okay, because we still have a lot to talk about. Science fiction has many fathers, but only one mother, the woman credited with creating the fledgling genre, Mary Shelley. Born to a renowned feminist writer and philosopher in 1797, Mary was sixteen when she fell in love with the poet Percy Shelley and the two ran away together to become a power couple of the literary romantic movement. One summer, at friend Lord Byron's villa, the three of them spent long nights debating everything from art to politics to galvanism, which is better known as raising bodies from the dead using electricity. On one eerie night, Byron challenged everyone to write a ghost story. Mary crafted a tale in which the fantastic could happen within the realm of the possible. The book contained very little science, but it masterfully explored the social and moral repercussions of what might happen if certain scientific advances were possible. If you've only seen movies of Frankenstein, you've been robbed of some of the best aspects of the story. It also bears noting, she was 19 at the time. I would definitely not want anyone reading what I wrote at 19. Frankenstein was published anonymously in 1818 with a preface by Percy Shelley, causing many to assume that he was the author, since writing books wasn't a proper undertaking for a lady. Following bestseller status and a successful stage adaptation, Mary set the record straight with the second edition in 1822, finally taking credit for her masterwork. Sadly, that was also the year that she lost Percy in a shipwreck, leaving her a 24-year-old widow. In a strange twist that you would, hopefully, only see from romantics, Mary had to fight Byron over which one of them got to keep Percy's preserved heart. She ended up giving Percy's skull to Byron as a sort of consolation prize. It would be nearly 50 years before the next big name in science fiction, Jules Verne, published Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864. He was the first writer to really make sci-fi his style, rather than merely dabbling in it. Verne established what we call hard sci-fi, studiously researching existing technology to forecast how it might grow. He considered not only how to propel a rocket, but how a human body would withstand the G-forces. Verne even figured out that the best place to launch a lunar mission would be the coast of Florida. He also used his writing as commentary on topics like imperialism and European social order. It is from his works that we get the archetype of the courageous explorer going off into the unknown rather than dealing with the things he can't accept in his own world. Around the World in 80 Days gave us the steampunk aesthetic. Bit of a white elephant there and the first glimpse at a world that was being shrunk by technology with increasing rapidity as people became able to communicate and travel over long distances faster than ever before. The other name usually said in the same breath is H.G. Wells. Though critics fueled Verne as fluff and nonsense, opinions had begun to shift by the time Wells published The Time Machine in 1895. He would actually receive four nominations for the Nobel Prize in Literature. Where Verne wove his commentary into his stories, Wells was more open and blunt about it. For example, the eponymous Invisible Man can't survive without society, even with his godlike power. Wells not only looked ahead to where technology and the human condition might go, but took those evolutions to their extremes. You see this in The Time Machine, where mankind has split into weak, beautiful upper-class people, and bestial labors, with the rich being afraid of the poor. The alien invaders destroying the Earth in the War of the Worlds are defeated by microbes. This is actually a concern in real-life space travel. NASA has an entire department dedicated to sterilizing equipment to ensure that we don't contaminate the final frontier. Wells used science to make the fantastical seem possible, so it could be used as a lens to study the human condition. As if all that wasn't enough, he wrote the first rule system for tabletop gaming in the book Little Wars, so he deserves specific thanks from the D&D and Shadowrun set. The speed of invention and innovation in the late 19th and early 20th century made anything seem possible. It was also the last stand of the occult. It's where the end of the Romantic movement met pushback against rationalism, with a dash of well-to-do people looking for safe, transgressive entertainment, and a sprinkling of people out to make a buck. For more on the spiritualism movement, check out our very first episode about hoaxes and false panics. The occult began to take on aspects of science, and science in turn began to explore the occult. Even scientific greats like Thomas Edison looked for the factual basis of fantastical claims like astral projection and communicating with the dead. The occult also provided a stopgap solution for authors who couldn't quite suss out the science of the situation. Need to converse with oddly-shaped, slime-based beings from another planet? Telepathy will handle that. The crossover separated itself from hard sci-fi by planting its feet firmly on the platform that there are things that we will encounter that science simply cannot explain, at a time when it seemed like science would be able to explain everything any day now. It became one of the hallmarks of pulp sci-fi, and would be treated and regarded as if it were legitimate, and not a handy deus ex machina. It also appeared in better quality work, like that of Robert Chambers. Robert Chambers was arguably the first sci-fi horror writer. Though he was a prolific author publishing over 80 books, only a few are still read, the best-known being The King in Yellow. His book, Search for the Unknown, introduced cryptids, fantastical but plausible creatures, into the genre. You can almost draw a direct line between his work and TV series like The X-Files. While not the first to use it, Chambers arguably was the best in using the invented manuscript. The King in Yellow contains a play that is reputed to be cursed. Act 1 lures in the reader, but anyone who reads Act 2 will go insane. Chambers directly influenced many better-known names in sci-fi writing. For those of you waiting with bated breath for H.P. Lovecraft's turn, you're going to have to walk away from this one a tad disappointed. Without getting into the unanswerable question of can you separate the art from the artist, the man was racist as all hell, and he's not getting airtime on my show. Go back and read his stuff again, especially a 1912 poem that has the N-word right in the title. No subtlety or subtext needed there. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, Cthulhu. Going back to Invented Manuscript, another author to use it to great effect was William Hodgson. His classic House on the Borderland is a haunted house story wherein the house sits on a rift between dimensions. It's credited for introducing cosmic horror into sci-fi. Cosmic horror is the concept that there are things out there somewhere so terrible that we lack the capacity to even imagine them. Hodgson's works also spin the convention that science fiction must actually be plausible establishing that you need only construct a world that the reader believes could be possible. In The Nightland, he firmly establishes the Dying Earth genre, previously only touched on by books like The Time Machine. Dying Earth is similar to Post-Apocalyptia, except that Dying Earth hinges on entropy rather than catastrophe. Author Richard Jeffries gave us arguably the first post-apocalyptic novel with After London. He established what are now tropes, the defining characteristics by which we declare something to be post-apocalyptic. Feudal-type societies dominated by the strong, roving bands of savages, the details of the apocalypse being lost or misunderstood, the hero wandering the hellscape to provide us with exposition, and so on. Jeffries was otherwise a nature writer by trade, which is probably why he also gave us the essential idea of finding the beauty in the wasteland. For some great dissertations on character creation and world building, check out the Trope Talks playlist on the Overly Sarcastic Productions YouTube channel. Then check out all their other playlists. Tell Red and Blue that Moxie sent you. Another novel that creates themes and ideas that we still see to this day is Olaf Stapleton's 1937 Star Maker. He created many sprawling worlds through his works, and even in this one book created multiple worlds and multiple ways that life could exist that is different from our own. He also gave us concepts like collective consciousness, the universe as a single sentient entity, and the Dyson Sphere. Having nothing to do with high-end vacuum cleaners, Stapleton's Dyson Sphere is a megastructure that completely encompasses a star and captures its power output. This was one of Stapleton's solutions for how a space-faring civilization would meet its energy requirements. It's named for theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson, who wrote a paper exploring the idea in 1960. But that Dyson publicly credits Stapleton for the idea. It was also one of the first, if not the first, story to feature the multiverse, the idea that every choice creates a new world in which each option was selected. All of that in a single novel. One topic that comes up time and again in sci-fi is the robot uprising. We even joke about it offhandedly in our daily lives when our Roomba does something particularly silly, or our smart speaker has a snappy comeback to something we said. Though science fiction began in earnest in the 1880s, the word robot didn't exist until 1921. It first appeared in a play by Karl Kapik, Rossum's Universal Robots, and was taken from an old Czech word for forced labor. In it, humans create automatons to do their menial work. Some people argue that the robots are sentient and should have rights, but that opposition is quickly quashed. People begin to make new and better robots in hopes that they can take on more advanced tasks, but these more advanced robots leave the others in a revolt and, as Bender said, kill all humans. The play concludes with the last remaining person handing the world over to the robots, thus ending the days of man upon this earth. Whether it's HAL or the T-1000, you can track all Robot Uprising stories back to Rosam's Universal Robots. Though no later writer seems to have used that acquiescence in their story. Bonus Fact The name HAL in 2001 A Space Odyssey was chosen because each letter is one letter off from IBM Sci-fi really hit its stride with magazines and pulp novels. More cost-effective paper manufacturing, combined with a dominantly literate populace, and a glut of people who could write but not find work doing it, created a fertile situation in the early 20th century. It was an immigrant from Luxembourg, Hugo Gernsback, who first thought to make a magazine dedicated exclusively to science fiction. And now we all know something about Luxembourg. Gernsback had begun with magazines about radio technology, electronics, and engineering, which sometimes included a little fiction to keep things interesting. He created the magazine Amazing Stories in 1926 to try to make science fiction a vehicle for introducing people to science fact. Amazing Stories also became a way for writers to actually make a little money with sci-fi. Gernsback wasn't the best businessman ever, and many of his authors went elsewhere when they weren't getting paid. He also wanted the focus to be too much on dry science education rather than entertaining stories, but at the same time didn't seem too concerned that that science be accurate. He would end up declaring bankruptcy, but not before he'd established his legacy. He inspired scores of publishers to start sci-fi magazines. The cover art he made for Amazing Stories cemented in our minds what a rocket ship or a ray gun is supposed to look like, as well as what fonts and letterings look science fiction-y. To this day, the Hugo Awards are given to the best science fiction and fantasy works every year. In 1929, Amazing Stories also saw a character from its pages licensed for comic strips, which helped to move sci-fi to a new medium, one more attractive to younger readers, many of whom would go on to be sci-fi authors in their own right. Buck Rogers and his competing analog Flash Gordon had the excitement of pulp sci-fi without worrying too much about the bothersome science stuff. They were adventure series, as much as Pirates or Tarzan, just set in space. They further spread and solidified the sci-fi look that Gernsback had begun, Those rounded, flanged, often impractical Art Deco aesthetics would spread to movies and TV shows.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Faceoff launches April 9th. Hello,
0: everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna. and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The spread of sci-fi to comics also made detractors more convinced that it was, as an institution, for kids. Editor of Astounding Stories magazine John Campbell sought to change that. In the words of Isaac Asimov, one of those better-knowns we're not covering today,
1: By his own example, he forced first astounding and then all science fiction into his mold. He demolished the stock characters who had filled it, eradicated the penny-dreadful plots, extirpated the Sunday supplement science. Instead, he demanded that science fiction writers understand science and understand people, a hard requirement that many of the established writers of the 1930s could not meet. Campbell did not compromise because of that. Those who could not meet his requirements could not sell to him and the carnage was as great as it had been in Hollywood a decade before, while silent movies had given way to the talkies.
0: After the closure of Amazing Stories, his astounding stories became market leader and gave him great power since he could decide what stories were published. He only wanted stories that used science, but weren't about science. Campbell saved sci-fi by forcing it to evolve. The genre evolved but he himself didn't. He alienated his writers over time by adhering religiously to his established style, became far too interested in pseudoscience, and threw his lot in fully with Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. Campbell was painfully racist too, but his time as editor helped to launch the golden age of science fiction, so he eked his way into the episode. Campbell did have one unique moment in his career, a story he was working on with one of his authors about possible nuclear weapons brought the FBI to his door. Apparently their guesses were landing too close to the mark. He was not only able to convince them that any well-read person would have been able to put together the information he had, but to allow him to keep publishing the story, as pulling it mid-serial would raise suspicions. He further trumped the agents by casually asserting that he knew the nuclear project was taking place in Los Alamos, because astounding stories had seen a jump in subscriptions being moved there. The golden age of sci-fi reached into the 1950s when a new medium became available, television. It was the BBC that gave the world both the first and the most enduring science fiction TV shows. The Quartermass experiment consisted of six half-hour parts broadcast live in 1953, as was the way of things then. It told a story of the first manned rocket launch carried out by Professor Quartermass's British Experimental Rocket Group. Radio contact with the three astronauts is lost. When the ship crashed back to Earth, only one astronaut was aboard. Taken to the hospital, he slowly transformed into a horrendous amalgam of man and plant creature. The Quartermass Experiment had a number of sequel installments in the 50s, though they didn't get around to concluding the story until 1979. It was also remade, live, in 2005. If you ask the average person to name a British sci-fi show, five will get you ten, they're going to say Doctor Who. The first ever episode of Doctor Who, called An Unearthly Child, first appeared on BBC TV on November 23, 1963. The show quickly captured the imagination of an entire audience, with as many as 12 million fans tuning in. No small feat in the early 60s. The words TARDIS and Dalek are so familiar to British audiences that they've been added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Doctor Who was originally intended to be an educational program. The Doctor would go back in time to teach history, and the segments in space were to teach science. Viewers favored the segments with aliens, so the historical stories were phased out by the end of the 60s. I could regale you with a full history of the show, but this isn't your brain on history, it's your brain on facts. So let's bounce around some interesting facts. Besides, the show's been on for 55 years. If you don't know what it's about by now, I can't help you. The regeneration effect, used for when one doctor changes into the next, was created at the end of the first season by accident. Faulty equipment caused the image of first doctor, William Hartnell, to be overexposed to the point that it allowed second doctor, Patrick Troughton to get into place before the effect faded. The distinctive TARDIS sound effect was originally created by rubbing the bass strings of the piano with a key. Verity Lambert became the youngest drama producer at the BBC in 1963 when she accepted the role to work on Doctor Who. She was also the first woman to gain such a role in television. Doctor Who, and in fact the entire time travel genre, is banned in China because the government doesn't want to promote anything that might be seen as a rewriting history. The original pilot episode, which was thought to have been lost, was rediscovered in 1978 in a mislabeled film can. Losing episodes was almost a theme for the show. A huge chunk of the first six years is missing. There are no episodes from the 1960s on their original master tapes. As of this recording, 97 episodes remain missing. Why? The BBC taped over them. The scenario behind the decision requires some backstory. In the 1950s, the Performers Union argued against the taping of shows, as opposed to the live shows that were standard. Their stance was that the show could be rebroadcast without having to pay the actors to come in again. When recorded shows became more common, the union demanded contracts stipulating how many times any given taped performance could be rebroadcast. When the BBC started broadcasting in color in 1966 and 67, they didn't see the point in keeping tapes of black and white shows. Further, those tapes were very expensive, and it made better financial sense to reuse a tape that cost the equivalent of $3,000 a piece, rather than replacing it. There was also no home video market, so people didn't consume shows after the initial viewing. The BBC does have a film library, which archives everything the BBC puts to film, but because the original Doctor Who episodes were on tape first, then transferred to film, the library felt their copies were redundant and didn't keep them. As a result, the film library only had 47 of the first 253 episodes, about 18% of them, when the master tapes were erased. But all hope is not lost. Copies turn up now and again. In 2013, tapes containing nine missing episodes were found at a TV relay station in Nigeria. The recovered material includes four episodes of a six-parter called the web of fear, a quintessential Doctor Who story, in which the Time Lord battles robot Yetis spreading a poisonous fungus on the London Underground. What? Uh, is a London? Under- no, that's what it says. Well, it was the 60s. Episode three of that series is still missing. BBC Worldwide made the episodes available on iTunes and DVD. Speaking of iTunes, have you had a second to leave a review? They don't have to be long to be meaningful. Last week we got a five star review from Pod Addict 24, who said, I love Moxie's voice and candid style, laying out the facts over soothing music. My new favorite way to unwind before bed. Thanks. Thank you, Pod Addict 24. And I'm blushing myself silly to think about how many people take me to bed with them. Now, for the reason we're all here today. 6 sequel series, 14 movies, hundreds of books, and more than 125 video games, all from a show that only ran for 3 years. That's the legacy of the original Star Trek series. On September 8th, 1966, Gene Roddenberry's galaxy-spanning, stereotype-busting, issue-tackling saga debuted on NBC and helped transform sci-fi television forever. While it wasn't a massive hit at the time, its fans loved it enough to christen themselves with not one, but two nicknames. Or it could be said that they called themselves Trekkers, but other people called them Trekkies. The word Trekkie soon came to stand for an overly invested sci-fi fan with more concerns about warp technology than personal hygiene, who imagined what it's like to live on alien worlds but not what it's like to move out of their parents' house. Actress Majel Barrett, who would marry Gene Roddenberry in 1969, appeared in every Star Trek series up until her death in 2008. She actually began as the first officer in the unaired pilot, but pre-Women's Lib test audiences didn't like a female character acting as strong as the male characters. She eventually found her place as Nurse Chapel in 22 episodes. She appeared both on camera and as the voice of the ship's computer on The Next Generation, and continued to voice the computer in subsequent series and even the first J.J. Abrams reboot movie. As I mentioned at the end of the episode The Role of a Lifetime, Leonard Nimoy borrowed the Vulcan salute hand gesture from his childhood experiences in synagogue. The hand gesture represents the Hebrew word Shaddai, the name for God. The Vulcan neck pinch was also a Nimoy contribution. The script had called for him to knock someone out with the butt of his phaser, but he found that too wild west, so he invented the nerve pinch. Remember, kids, there is no Vulcan death grip. Michelle Nichols was a singer on stage well before she was an actress on television, and she'd been offered a role on Broadway for which she was fully ready to leave the show. She was convinced to stay not by Roddenberry or her co-stars, but by Dr. Martin Luther King. Nichols related that he said, Nichelle, whether you like it or not, you have become a symbol. If you leave, they can replace you with a blonde-haired white girl and it will be like you were never there. What you've accomplished, for all of us, will only be real if you stay. That got me thinking about how it would look for fans of color around the country if they saw me leave. I saw that this was bigger than just me. The Green Orion Slave Girl is arguably the most iconic one-off image from the show, and the star of one of my favorite anecdotes. I'm going to get a cup of tea... Earl Grey, hot. And let my buddy Sean from Stories of Your and Yours take over for a minute.
1: The Green Girl was the creation of Fred Phillips, who also made Spock's Vulcan look for the original Star Trek television series. Stephen E. Whitfield and Gene Roddenberry recalled in the making of Star Trek in 1968 how Phillips grew increasingly frustrated as three consecutive makeup screen tests, in which Roddenberry's future wife Majel Barrett had been painted green, came back negative. Now, Fred Phillips is an exceptionally fine makeup artist and recognized as a top pro in the business. He did a thorough job with the makeup and was quite satisfied with the results. Imagine everyone's surprise upon viewing the developed film the next day to find the actress's face just as normally pink-skinned as ever. There was no trace of green. Jean's orders to Fred Phillips? Paint her greener. The following day, the test film again showed her as pink-skinned as ever. Even Fred was dumbfounded. Recalling the incident, he says, We did this three days in a row. We had her so green you couldn't believe it, and she kept coming back pink. Finally, we figured out what was happening. The technician over at the film lab would receive the film every day and run it through the development solution. As the image formed on the film, he kept saying to himself, My god, this woman is green. And so, he kept correcting the film developing process in order to turn her back to normal skin color again.
0: Have you ever tried to figure out how the Stardate system works? If you pay careful attention to the episodes, it quickly becomes apparent that they don't make a lick of sense. They're certainly not in order. That was actually fine, since the network had a pesky habit of airing the episodes out of order. Roddenberry came up with a feasible explanation to soothe the fans.
1: I came up with a statement that this time system adjusts for shifts in relative time which occurred due to the vessel's speed and space warp capability. It has little relationship to Earth's time as we know it. One hour aboard the USS Enterprise at different times may equal as little as three Earth hours. The star dates specified in the log entry must be computed against the speed of the vessel, the space warp, and its position within our galaxy in order to give a meaningful reading. Therefore, star date would be one thing at one point in the galaxy and something else again at another point in the galaxy. I'm not quite sure what I meant by that explanation, but a lot of people have indicated it makes sense. If so, I've been lucky again, and I'd just as soon forget the whole thing before I'm asked any further questions about it.
0: Thanks, Sean. If you enjoyed those snippets, pop over to Stories of Your and Yours for your weekly story fix. You may even hear a familiar voice pop up on his podcast. While Gene Roddenberry strived to push against social restraints as much as possible, the women on the show were still relegated to appearance first. All female crew members wore mini-dresses and their close-ups were shot with a soft focus to keep things all feminine. Mini-dresses came up again later, but as a force for gender equality. When the next generation started, everyone was wearing mini-dresses, male and female alike. It is literally officially known as the scant uniform. The only distinction in it seemed to be rank. The highest ranking officers wore unflattering black pants with theirs. I don't see why we would get to see enough of Sir Patrick Stewart's legs during the show. Check the last link in the show notes for a treasure trove of screenshots of the scant uniform if you don't remember it. To date though, no one has given me a sufficient explanation for Counselor Troy's cat suits. Star Trek is also credited with giving the world slash fanfiction. For those fortunate enough not to know what that is, fanfiction is when you write stories about characters that already exist, and slash is when you pair up two characters of the same gender. In this case, Kirk and Spock. I blame the episode amok time. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Needless to say, we've only turned the first few pages on the book of sci-fi. I actually stopped writing and cut whole sections because this was running long. We didn't get anywhere near discussing new wave, space opera, or Afrofuturism. Oh, I almost forgot to tell you my dad's joke. What's the difference between a Trekker and a Trekkie? A Trekker wonders what sex is like in Zero-G. A Trekkie wonders what sex is like. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And thanks, Dad. Today's episode was brought to you by the word Bloviate. Bloviate. The world is constantly changing and transforming.